I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... Six, seven years ago, I started something called Smart Women, Smart Power, and the idea was to amplify the voices of women in national security. It's a, it's a series of live events, and it's also a podcast, and we interview top women. I've you know, interviewed everybody on stage from like Christine Lagarde to Melinda Gates, women astronauts, top military women. And let me tell you, Mark, so many women from Washington come to these events, and these young women, and they're looking for career paths. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Today, we have a great conversation with Nina Easton. Nina is one of the co-founders of Sellers Easton Media here in Washington, D.C., but that's not the point. She sure as heck knows what's going on in Washington, D.C., but she brings two perspectives to you that I think you'll find fascinating. Number one, a look back at LBJ. Yes, Lyndon Bain Johnson. She brings, she really brings it today with some features about his career that really nobody has thought about that I think you will find incredibly interesting. Secondly, Yes, it's the 250th anniversary of our nation coming up in 2026. Five years from now, sure. But still, the planning for that is starting now, just like the Olympics. And how we're planning to celebrate, hopefully in an inclusive and non-confrontational way, what our nation's all about, I think you'll find their planning fascinating. What's working in Washington with Nina Easton? Here's our conversation. Nina, welcome to the show. It is so great to be here, and I love the title of your show, Mark. This is so needed at this time in our history. I'm glad you said that because all of the wags that I tell I'm I'm hosting this show with uh, with Tracy Maddock and our producer, a lot of them say, oh, it's a two-minute show. Okay, uh, I get it. I know Washington is considered uh, having some challenges these days, but you've been around the block in this city for a while. So let's go— Start in your background. Uh, what brought you to Washington, D.C.? What brought you to start Sellers Easton Media? I know you had a media background with major magazines and other media companies. So w- walk us through that. Mark, I'm really old, so that's <laughs> going to take a while. But the, I'll, I'll give you a couple highlights. I co-wrote a book on the Reagan administration back in 1982. It became a Washington Post bestseller. Um, we were profiling t- t- 100 top people in the Reagan administration, uh, including William Casey, the CIA director, Casper Weinberger, the defense secretary, James Baker. Rudy Giuliani, Ooh. who screamed at me afterwards because I'd quoted somebody saying he was hot tempered. Ah. So, uh, yeah, so that uh, that was my first endeavor after graduating from the University of California, Berkeley, um, went on to a career that in, uh, included 10 years at the L.A. Times and then Fortune Magazine, where I ultimately became a Washington bureau chief and Washington columnist and co-chair. This was probably the most interesting side of uh, things was I was co-chair of Fortune Most Powerful Women International. So I built out women's leadership events around the world from Hong Kong to Canada to London. And I was also co-chair of Fortune Global Forum, which brought together CEOs, regardless of gender, obviously, again, all over the world. So did a lot of thought leadership during that period. And realized how much I loved storytelling and loved the stories of interesting people, but really people who are great leaders and impactful leaders. Mm -hmm. So five years ago, my now business partner, Patty Sellers, also a very top senior fortune editor, she called and said, let's uh, let's leave fortune, uh, the editorial side. We kept doing the, the events for some time afterwards. Let's leave and start this 
company. So we became entrepreneurs uh, just five years ago, and we have a multimedia storytelling company where we do everything from memoirs for CEOs, we do documentaries, we do films and videos, and we also do live events because I firmly believe that live events are a form of storytelling. They're where people can tell their own stories and where we can learn those valuable leadership lessons. And now I sound almost as Pollyanna as you in naming your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's so many great things to unpack there. First, and I know we have so much to talk about, but working for the LA Times, I think you're probably one of many people that are bemoaning the tragic almost end of, of large city newspapers. And we can return to that. But also, I, I worked at Time Inc., so we're both Time Inc. veterans. I worked at Home Box Office, which was, you know, the down and the other floors right. and nothing to do with you, you important people up in the magazines. But in the fortune efforts that you did and women in leadership, it seems like we keep shoving the rock up the hill like Sisyphus in trying to get women into the C-suite, on boards of public companies, into positions of leadership. Have you seen progress in the commitment by the men that are in the C-suite now to having this really take hold? I think there's definitely a commitment, but it is, it, like you say, a rock up a hill. I mean, you look at the numbers of women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, it's 7%. Yeah. Uh, you look at the number of women on top corporate boards, it's like in the you know high teens, a little more than that. It's moved. The needle has moved, but it's not moving fast enough. And we actually are continuing some efforts, um, one of which we're working on right now that I, I can't talk about. But we, we're looking at ways to really bringing in men because there are a lot of men uh, that are they're, – they're incredibly important to this equation. And there are a lot of men leaders who believe that women should be equally represented at the top. And they also understand – I think when we think more broadly, you talk about diversity, when you start talking about innovators – and scientists, they all say it be, it, it's all about asking questions, and you don't ask enough questions or the right questions or enough of a range of questions unless you have people who are diverse of different backgrounds, whether they're racially diverse or gender diverse. It makes your organization stronger. So I think there's an understanding of that. Um, it continues to be slow, and I think um, I also think that the COVID. Uh, situation it definitely hurt women yeah. further down the the chain yeah. you know a lot well, of women to, quit yeah not to bash our great nation but do you see other nations that are frankly a little better at it than we are well it's interesting i spent a lot of time um in europe doing, with our fortune most powerful women they're very well re women are very well represented in politics mm -hmm. and in government but frankly they're not as well represented in business as we are interesting and then in asia it's interesting in, in china we we had uh, events in in hong kong and mainland china but in, in you look at hong kong a lot of women are entrepreneurs mm -hmm. uh, wow. you see a lot of women entrepreneurs so there's there's different there's diff we, and, and i think we i think we do pretty well globally it's yeah. it's a global issue it's not just and we can start to talk about afghanistan yeah. where women have been which is heartbreaking women will be set back after two, three generations of tremendous progress in mm -hmm. that country. It's tragic. I think Bill Clinton, amongst many other people, have said that there's no first world economy that is robust that, that doesn't have women fully engaged in all the sectors, private, public, and all that. And yeah, he's well, right. And it was Hillary Clinton who actually um, made the case for women's rights as human rights, as we all recall, back in 1995 in Beijing at the United Nations confab there. Um, and she was very articulate. I actually interviewed her 
uh, during the APEC summit in Hawaii one year early on in um, her tenure as Secretary of State. And she would talk to world leaders and make the case, and there's empirical evidence to back this up, that including women at the decision-making table, whether it's government or business, actually increases your GDP. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how you have to talk about it. I mean, it does. There, there have been studies that show it. You are your economy suffers if women aren't at the top of the table. Well, there, we, we actually, when I was at the SBA, we did a study uh, with the Library of Congress uh, of private sector, public companies, and those whose boards was diverse. The stock did better. It than, did. I mean, it's, it's not to your point. It's an economic imperative. Yes. So as a shareholder, you're like, why would you not have a diverse board? Your stock will better perform. But I was at HBO in the early 80s, and that's when Forbes ruled Fortune. the land. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm Forbes sorry. Fortune. Okay. Excuse me. I Common. That. It's okay. But they, they were actually both yeah. brands were ruling as, as print products that cover the business uh, arena. Talk about a change in how media covers things. What are some brands, if any, that you think, besides the Fortune and Forbes of the world, and they're still obviously very robust, what are some brands you think have emerged that really cover business or cover the issues that you covered as a fortune for a person? Well, I covered, I actually covered politics. I've written three books on American politics Got and it. history. And, and I was really a Washington kind of person. I wasn't covering, I was covering the economy more than business per se. But yeah. I would, um, so given that background and my interest in things, I do believe there are tremendous um, news organizations out there still. One is the Washington Post and yep. the, the resources that Jeff Bezos has put into that yeah. shows. And Marty Baron, who I, I recently retired and who I worked with um, at the Boston Globe and, and the LA Times, uh, he did tremendous, tremendous work with that um, that publication. And I think it's a great newspaper. And same with the New York Times, which has been able to find the way to to really creatively, I think, um, find channels of revenue, and uh, everything you know from podcasts to the paper to to, to live events that they're doing, um, I, I do think there's great reporting still out there. Glad to hear it. I I I, uh, I think reporting is something we all need because transparency is what really matters. So let's talk about some of the things you're doing now. I was unaware of the traction you're getting with so much work on the legacy of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Tell us about that. This was such an exciting um, project for us. The LBJ School of Public Affairs Graduate School that's sort of like the it's like the Kennedy School only yeah. it's at UT. Um, it uh, was celebrating their 50th anniversary in, in 2020, um, and we were we had the honor of producing that anniversary and again live events to tell the story, but also films where we interviewed. 70 people. I top, interviewed top historians. I interviewed the daughters. I inter- it was it was tr- students, alum, faculty. It was great. The great story, it shows you like deep diving what kind of things you find. So it turns out that no historian has, uh, has kind of dug into this yet. But when LBJ opened that school in 1970, it was a big dream of his. They couldn't get any students to go. Wow. Vietnam. Uh, hey, hey, LBJ, how yeah. many kids did you, did you kill, kill today? today? Yes, I remember the And you, they couldn't get any students wow. of stature to go to this graduate school. So they stuffed scholarships into the state budget. Ben Barnes, who was the lieutenant governor at the time, told me this. I think he wasn't comfortable sharing this until very late in his life. Uh, those scholarships went on for six, seven years and finally got people going. Some traction. Well, we yeah. were, got, got the traction and the students and so on. But what was interesting is that now, fast forward, I think all historians and what I did in my 
kind of production and reporting on that was look at this legacy of LBJ on the domestic side Mm -hmm. and understand that it's as transformative and possibly bigger than FDR Mm -hmm. because it includes it includes the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. We look like we do today in America because of the Immigration Act of 1965. It includes Medicare. It includes Medicaid. So this range, and it goes on and on, 200 pieces of major legislation that he pushed forward and affects us today. And the, the students there believe, like Stacey Abrams, who leader in Georgia, she, as she said, it's actually a burden now to go mm-hmm. there. Because if you go to the LBJ School of Public Policy, there, you know that that legacy is something that you have to carry forward into your career. So Fascinating. It's like it's still he. So his the the domestic legacy of LBJ, which is so at odds with Vietnam and and the foreign legacy, um, is is needs to be looked at and weighed, and we help do that. I bet every president, if you really dug deep, would probably some, I mean, some, maybe not, but this collision of what they're known for versus what they accomplished. But I think LBJ, to your point, may be the most, I don't know if tragic is the right word, but certainly eye-opening to see what we thought of in 1970, to your point. I guess bribery works because they were giving giving scholarships (laughs) to the school. But uh, but what he accomplished, and I I concur. I think the the fabric of America, the experience that we have as far as access and and diversity and stuff like that was was driven by... and, and. Final point before we take a break with our guest, Nina Easton. He famously said, I've lost the South forever, I think was one of the quotes. Probably you know the exact wording when he pushed through the Voting Rights Act. That's right. He had to stand up to the South to pass. I mean, these were not easy lifts, the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, particularly the Voting Rights Act. So, yeah, it was a a tremendous... um, Tremendous legacy that he has left that is with us today. It's Nina Easton here on What's Working in Washington. We're talking with Nina. She's the co-founder and partner at Sellers Easton Media. We'll have conversations about all sorts of things that she and her colleagues are doing, particularly about a celebration of the 250th anniversary of our great nation and the state of Maryland coming up after this break. What's Working in Washington is a weekly show and a podcast that you should enjoy. And guess what? There are sponsorships available. So if you feel like having your message, your company, your organization, your not-for-profit, just yourself involved in this message and reaching our audience, they are available for you to participate in. Please email me, the host, Mark Walsh, at Walsh at AOL. Yeah, Walsh at AOL.com. I'm going old school here. And you can find out more about what those opportunities are. Thanks so much. Welcome back to What's Working in Washington. Yes, the name of the show says it all. And we're excited to have as our guest today again, Nina Easton. She's the co-founder and partner at Sellers Easton Media here in Washington, D.C. But so many things that she's done in her career in both the media, politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's come a little closer to today. CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies. Did I get that right? That's correct. Excellent. Um, And Vital Voices. So walk our listeners through what you're doing with that organization. Well, CSIS, I'm a senior associate, and um, five, uh, six, seven years ago, I started something called Smart Women, Smart Power, and the idea was to amplify the voices of women in national security. So it's a it's a series of live events, and it's also a podcast, and we interview top women. I've you know I interviewed everybody on stage from like Christine Lagarde to Melinda Gates, as women astronauts, um, women uh, t- top military women. 
And let me tell you, Mark, so many women from Washington come to these events, and these young women, and they're looking for career paths, and particularly in national security, and to see how inspired they get. And I always try to – we talk a lot about issues, mostly three-quarters of the interviews about in, issues, but whenever I start talking about real life, like how do you balance being overseas as a diplomat with raising a family and, you know – these young women love that. They yeah. just love it. And I, I also, I was at uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, Naval Academy, one year interviewing Mary Barra, uh, the CEO of, of General Motors, and, and Indra Nui, who at the time was the CEO of PepsiCo, and this auditorium full of young women in their whites, and their dress whites, and several of them came up to me and had said they were so inspired listening to the podcast um, because it helped them. With their own careers and their sure. own understanding of the world. So that's we very powerful. We need to see what we want to be, right? That's fantastic. Yes. And then I want to give a plug for Vital Voices, which um, Vital Voices is the largest women's empowerment, women leader empowerment organization in the world. We help women who are making change around the world. And why I want to give a plug right now is they were so, I watched this firsthand, they were on the ground in Afghanistan uh, or with partners in Afghanistan, evacuating women leaders. Um, they are right in the middle of protecting, supporting, helping find housing for all these women leaders who are uh, under threat in the current environment. And so I encourage people, if you're looking, I know a lot of people come to me looking for a place to, to donate to help women and girls in Afghanistan, and uh, I highly recommend Vital Voices. Wow. Well, I, I think it Tell me where I'm I'm wrong, but it strikes me that national security and military is probably the most male-dominated. We talked about women in power in the private sector. What are some things you've seen that are showing progress there? You mentioned the, the women at the Naval Academy. Is progress sort of slower or tougher to make? Is it, as they used to say in football, six yards in a cloud of dust? Kind of where where are we going there? Well, you know, there's also Madeleine Albright, yeah. Hillary Clinton, uh, yeah. Condi Rice. You know, they're, they're, some of the great women leaders have come out of national security. Um, you know, we're seeing more astronauts. We're seeing more women in, in the military, the very senior levels. So I think there is progress there. It's just it's just like the corporate world. We have to keep pushing forward and making sure women are at the table. Well, I think you mentioned earlier about your, your firm, Lex, about st- storytelling. And it just strikes me in the way you described the audience at the Naval Academy. They, they were seeing a story in real life of somebody who'd achieved a level that they're aspiring to. So stories make a difference, as you know, every single day at Sellers Eastern Media. So tell us about what's going on in 2026. Apparently, it's some important year in our nation's history. People don't know this. Don't be surprised if you don't know this, because you probably thought we were done celebrating the revolution in 1776 (laughs) when we were celebrating the 200th anniversary of America's founding. This is the 250th anniversary of America's founding. And it's going to be very exciting. I've been appointed as the chair of a commission by Governor Larry Hogan in Maryland. So I'm chair of the Maryland Commission. Every single state has a commission. We're just getting our legs under us, but other states are a little farther along, a little others are farther back. But all the states are coming together under one umbrella. It's America250.org. That's the national umbrella and the national organization that's kind of leading the charge. I'll tell you what's exciting about this. It is going to be not only the largest celebration, it is going to be the most inclusive. Mm -hmm. And the America 250 
organizers have made it very clear that that's our mission. We're going to find untold, undertold stories and make this a, revel- a, a commemoration for all. And, you know, and, and I'll give you an example of that. I mean, we, you know, we, the revolution is as a woman um, and as people of color, uh, no, we did not. The revolution did not provide liberty for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a long time coming for a lot of people. And and in Maryland, I what I love about Maryland is people don't realize that we actually produced three of the great abolitionist voices of our time. Frederick Douglass, mm. Harriet Tubman. Wow. By the way, I was just in the state capital of Maryland um, a couple weeks ago and saw there's new statues of those two. I did not know that. Um, like facing each other. Wow. And there's a great letter from Frederick Douglass to Harriet Tubman basically saying, you know, I'm sorry I get all the glory, but you deserve it more. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Being a woman, you didn't get all the glory you deserve. And the other one is Josiah Henson, who was the um, model for Uncle Tom's Cabin and was a, became a great abolitionist, also escaped, just like those two, escaped to Canada, much better known in Canada. His house is right up here on old Georgetown Road where Jeez. he was enslaved. How I mean, amazing. and there's so those are the kinds of stories that will so enrich our telling of America's birthday, but, uh, you know, Maryland's part in it as well. Is the National Governors Association going to help or what kind of what, what are some strings you think this effort will pull for the sort of political support, funding, et cetera, that you'll need? I think everything I think honestly, we're in the baby stages right Got now. It. So all of us, I mean, I, I think the states were working to get resources, staffing, private donations and private partnerships. Um, we're looking to engage schools because this is going to be a very um, critical moment for for schools as well. So I think everybody at this point is looking. I, I'm we've got 30 commissioners and they're still being appointed. So mm-hmm. we are we we had an executive order that gave birth to us just a little bit earlier this year. So we are still getting off the ground. We're hoping to have a website um, this fall. So yeah, yeah. I mean, in, engaging the governors down the road, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's it's 2026. Sounds like we have a lot of time, but as we all know, no, <laughs> that that comes around pretty quickly. Well, it's like the Olympics when they yeah. choose a city. It's like they literally start working right yeah. away. And I know you mentioned inclusiveness, and uh, and one of as you know, one of the three letter acronyms in today's society we pay attention to: DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I guess there's, they've added B now, which is belonging. So you have to make sure your, your acronyms have all the letters. But it's such a divided time. I, I'm sure – what are your thoughts on kind of keeping it inclusive and trying to avoid some of the divisiveness that our national conversation has every day to, to celebrate this in five years? Right? I'm sure there'll be, there'll be some potholes. Oh, there'll, there'll definitely be potholes, and I'm ready. I think we're all, like, prepared for that, I, I, you know, as much as we can be. I mean, I, we're expecting that. Um, but I think – I think the most important thing is to listen. You know, I've, it's going to be very important for us once we're, we we have our sea legs on to get out around Maryland mm-hmm. and listen to people, yeah. to include people. We have 30 commissioners, which and, and which you know have a, represent a real wide range of organizations, from historical society to ethnic societies to, to the cabinet members and, and um, legislators. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of range, even just in our commission. So I think um, I think getting out, getting into the state, and talking to people, and making sure there's a channel so that people can voice their views and that people feel like they are part of it. This isn't right. imposed on them. Yeah. This needs to be 
it needs to be people uh, talking through our channel and, you know, so that they can be very much a part of this. We're talking with Nina Easton. Nina Easton is the co-founder and partner at Sellers Easton Media here in Washington, D.C., and has done so many things in the media. Unfair, but final couple of thoughts to toss your way. You know, you mentioned you wrote a book about Ronald Reagan and his his impact uh, early in your career. I wonder what some of these great communicator presidents would have done with today's social media. I mean, can you imagine what Ronald Reagan would have been like if he'd had some of these platforms today? The messaging, how he managed the words. I'm not I, I, I wasn't the world's greatest Reagan fan, but he was an amazing communicator. Sometimes you must be thinking, boy, I, 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 I'm sure some of these folks would have wished that they'd had that power. Well, let, let, let's play a game here. I'll, okay. I'll throw this back at you. Give me Ronald Reagan on Twitter. Can you imagine? Really? You know, he, but he yeah. was he was he was short. I yeah. mean, you know, he was pithy. short in words. He yeah. was pithy. He wanted notes in a pithy form. Yep. So um, he wanted you know note cards with 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 the main um, points. So I think it would have. Um, I think you know. But then, so, you know, I think some of our presidents would have been more comfortable with it than others. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, but but I do um, I do worry, just as your to your point about the body politic. I do worry about social media's impact yeah. on uh, on our politics and how to bring that back together, how to use it as a, a device for bringing people together versus tearing them apart. Well, let's finish with that question because um, we've talked about millennials and zennials and all that on this show with some of our guests. And I'm wondering, do you think the future, let's, let's pretend the next generation is in charge I think they're fully engaged, and I wonder if the social media impact will have sort of burned itself out by then and that there'll be more discourse of value and more discourse of maybe respect, or do you think we're headed even to darker times with social media? Well, I think I think we'll see both. I think we'll see darker times with social media, but I think we'll also see – I just know from my kids – I've got three kids ranging in age from 13 to 31 – they are concerned about the world, deeply concerned – and deeply engaged about people, about the climate, the climate, not the climate of politics, but they're deeply concerned about the earth, and they're deeply concerned about making an impact. I mean, you see all these companies want to appeal to millennials and Gen Zers who want to be feel like they're purpose-driven. Yeah, People want, you know, the young people want to feel like they're not just making a buck, but they are doing something to better the world. And that's a pretty good place to be when you're looking at future generations. What a great way to finish our conversations. You you make me feel a lot better than sometimes I let myself. It's Nina Easton. She's our guest today here on What's Working in Washington. Thanks for that upbeat finish, Nina. And it's been great to be with you today. Thanks, Mark. And I hope everybody in this audience knows how beautifully you sing the national anthem. <laughs> that's another story for another show. <laughs> It's What's Working in Washington. Our guest was Nita Easton. She's the co-founder and partner at Sellers Easton Media here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our content intern is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music is performed by the Aberman Brothers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.